0: Welcome to TW Now, where we examine today's news in light of the Bible. I'm Scott Winnale. Darwin's origin of species revolutionized the scientific world. His hypotheses are grand and appear to create a relatively simple explanation for the origin of life without a need for a creator. But there are holes in Darwin's seemingly bulletproof theory. In the roughly 160 years since Darwin wrote his seminal work, much science has been carried out and many new facts have come to light. Some of the facts appear to support Darwin's ideas of macroevolution, but upon closer examination they fall short. How does macroevolution fall short and what are the problems with this idea? Why don't we hear about these scientific faux pas as the media reports the issues? Or even in our science classrooms? For example, did you know that over a thousand scientists from around the globe Many from highly reputable and highly respected universities and institutes have now signed a petition calling into question the science behind evolutionary theory, and you see a link to an article about that. Most of these scientists possess doctorates in their fields of research. Not surprisingly, though, this startling headline did not make it into the popular press. This week on TW Now, we welcome two returning guests who have studied this topic in great detail and who will shed light on this often one sided and clouded issue. I'd like to welcome back Mr. Gerald Weston. Mr. Weston is a tomorrow's world writer and a presenter and a minister. He's written extensively on this topic and presented several tomorrow's world programs on the topic. Mr. Weston likes to cut to the chase with arguments, and he brings that skill to our discussion today. Welcome, Mr. Weston, it's great to have you here. Thank you, it's my pleasure. And I'd like to also welcome back Mr. Wallace Smith. Mr. Smith is a minister, he's a Tomorrow's World presenter, and he's also the primary science writer for Tomorrow's World magazine. He's also presented on this topic on Tomorrow's World Program, and he recently completed an in-depth and thoughtfully presented booklet on the topic of evolution that we'll be offering to you at the end of today's discussion. So again, gentlemen, it's great to have you on the program today, and I'm looking forward to our discussion. By the way, for our audience, this program is being pre-recorded because when it airs, several of our staff will be away at a church-sponsored summer camp. If you do have questions as we carry out our discussion, we do encourage you to message us and we'll do our best to address some of your questions. But do beware, it may be a couple of weeks before we can get back to you. Also, please remember to subscribe, to like, or to share today's program. Well, Mr. Weston, let's go ahead and jump into this topic, evolution. We hear the term evolution used a lot. Sometimes it's oversimplified and sometimes it's overgeneralized. There's these topics of macro and microevolution, which to some might be boring, but can you explain them a little bit as we start into our conversation?
1: Sure. I think that uh, to very, uh, make it very simple, uh, we all recognize that dogs changed, new breeds of dogs, even since you know we've been on this earth. They have new breeds of dogs, and that's what we call microevolution. It's changes within a particular kind, such as uh, uh, the dog kind or the canine kind. Uh, That's microevolution. Darwin saw that in pigeons. That's one of the things that helped him to come to his theory. Uh, He could see different uh, types of pigeons, different looks, uh, radically different uh, looks of pigeons. However, macroevolution is something like uh, lizards changing to birds because they say that uh, birds came from reptiles. So you have a, a, a huge leap from one particular kind to something totally different. That's
0: macroevolution, and that's where we have a problem. And so we're going to be talking about this concept of macroevolution today, right. this, this change from one species to an entirely different species. Yes,
1: we, we accept microevolution. I think that we'd be foolish, anybody would be foolish
0: to say that it doesn't happen, because it does. And it's basically microevolution then is sort of variation? Within a species. Within a species, right? Okay, Mr. Smith, we're talking today about Darwin or Darwinian evolution. This concept of macroevolution. Can you explain a little bit more what Darwin's
2: Origin of the Species treaties talked sure. about? Sure, I could do that. <clears throat> you have Charles Darwin. Uh, I think credit needs to be given where it's due. His insight was rather remarkable. It was wrong. It's it's mistaken. But it was a a radical idea and revolutionized the world for being as simple as it was. Essentially, he made some observations that he applied to the idea of evolution. Evolution as an idea existed before Darwin. You had different ideas of how animals could possibly change over time, that perhaps the animals we see today had somehow descended from other animals. Perhaps the giraffe's neck became long because over generations of reaching into the trees, the animal's neck just stretched. But they didn't have a good explanation. And frankly, without Darwin's theory, it just wasn't taken nearly as seriously. But what Darwin recognized is that, well, his ideas were that one, indeed the animals and living things have somehow, he suggested, descended from other animals. Where else did they come from? So they've descended from other animals, but his insight was on what he thought were the possible mechanisms. One was that he noticed animals varied. You look at birds and even within a species, some have longer beaks, some have shorter beaks, some may have stouter or stronger beaks. And you know even between us and our own families, there's variations between us and our children. Mm-hmm. But that within all that random variation, it's all happening in a world in which there's so much competition. Uh, There's a competition for resources. There's a competition to reproduce and to to make more children. And so what he was thinking was that perhaps a, a sense of natural selection, that within these random variations, some variations might make the offspring a little better suited to survive in their environment. So if you have a say, a collection of birds. Some of them might have beaks that are just a bit longer so they can reach in places that other birds can't. Well, that would give that particular bird a slight advantage. That bird's offspring would have a do a better job getting resources, uh, creating more baby birds than the other birds. And that over time, nature, in a certain kind of way, would reward that animal with more opportunities to reproduce, more opportunities for food. And thus the other characteristics wouldn't be rewarded as much. And so you have a change that's been rewarded. Suddenly you can have a new species of birds with perhaps longer beaks. And when he, when he saw there was a certain logic to that, Then he said, Well, just extrapolate that. Just imagine how over time we could have a a wondrous variety in the animals, where eventually, you know, an animal evolves a thumb, you know, that, that seems to work differently than the other fingers. So it was a simple idea, recognizing there is random variation in life and recognizing there is pressure to survive and reproduce. So possibly those two things together can produce all of life that we have in all of its seemingly infinite variety. So it was a very simple idea. But part of why it was so popular was it gave a mechanism for something that no one had a mechanism for. Many people wanted evolution sort of to be true because it didn't require a god. And it seemed like something that might do the trick. And it was the philosophy of it that really caught fire.
1: Maybe I could add an example. Evolution... Uh, theory has a lot of examples that they use that are classic examples in high schools and they sound very good. For example, in the United Kingdom or in England, uh, there was one famous experiment or or observation of moths that uh, certain dark-colored moths thrived in a particular city because at that time they used a lot of coal and everything was was dirty and, and uh, had black dust all over it. And so it, it pointed out that they survived whereas the ones that were white didn't survive because the birds could find them a lot easier and and ate them. The the problem with that is that there were black moths and white moths. That's a little bit simplistic. They weren't exactly black and white, but light-colored and dark-colored moths to start with. So they were already there. It's just a matter of selecting amongst them. But as soon as things cleaned up, then the white moths came back.
0: Okay. Well, you actually are pushing us to where I really want to go with our discussion today. We're talking about holes in Darwin's theory. And what I'd like to ask you to start with, Mr. Weston, is can you begin to talk about some of the problems with this concept of macroevolution? Or, or hole, so what are some of the big holes mm. in Darwin's theory when we look at it today? There are a lot of proponents for Darwinian evolution, yet it's not the exact science that some of its proponents make it out to be.
1: Well, uh, I'd like to go back to my experience at uh, Ventura College when I was uh, taking a biology class and our professor was talking about the uh, Harold Urey and uh, Stanley Miller experiment where they put a bunch of uh, uh, chemicals, you might say, uh in some test tubes a little bit more complicated than that and it had a certain circuit and they added electricity to it and it produced amino acids and then the professor went
0: on to start talking about the cell is this the experiment where they were trying to sort of reproduce the primordial soup exactly that created the first life that exactly that pond that Darwin trying to show
1: how inorganic can become organic and eventually produce life Uh, back in 1952-53 is when it came out and so uh, I I haven't raised my hand because we had been studying the cell and it's pretty complex in a lot of ways now when Darwin looked at the cell 160 years ago it it didn't look like much but as time has gone by we know much more about the cell and far more today than during that time of uh, Miller-Urey But at any rate, I I raised my hand and I said, well, how did you get from a few amino acids to a full-blown cell? And he said he wasn't going to discuss that. He said that is the biggest gap in evolution. And he said, the fact is that we are here, so the the gap was bridged. (laughs) Now, I didn't have enough presence at the time to raise my hand again and say, well, sir, we agree that we're here. That's not the issue but you're trying to tell us how we got here, and you cannot explain that gap. I had no idea how large that gap was at the time. I knew it was a big gap, mm-hmm. but it is, it is gargantuan. It, it's, it's a Grand Canyon plus uh, the, the gap between the two.
0: Well, it makes me wonder if your professor had any idea how large that gap was at that time as well.
1: That's right. He probably didn't
2: know all that is known now. Well, he couldn't. Yeah, That's part of what's <laughs> fascinating about the sciences is their discoveries don't tend to shorten the gaps it seems like the more we're discovering mm. the larger uh, the gaps are the larger the gaps are getting absolutely
0: mr smith what kind of gaps are you seeing holes in in darwin's well theory? that's
2: that's a good question because there are many one of my favorites is what happens when you put their stories to the test i grew up on evolution i believed it frankly i mm. i was inundated with it even then and you're talking about i'm not young but i'm not old i'm old enough and it's gotten worse since then so if you just pick one story the eye is a good example it's a very common story and they'll admit they don't know necessarily this is how the eye evolved but it's what they'll suggest and they'll say take a simple creature like a starfish or something that doesn't have an eye but imagine it has some sort of photo light sensitive spot and then over generations that maybe one of those starfish has a slight indentation there that helps the light to be collected just somewhat simpler. And then the next thing you know there's a step where it's 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 now more of a bowl figure with a pinhole. And then many generations later maybe it's got a film covering or just a little thin transparent film that adds a little focus. And they you go step by step by step and they weave a tail such that the next thing you know, there's a fully functioning eye. In this in the control room maybe we can bring that image up. Thank you. Oh hey great. There's a, a good it's amazing actually how even oversimplified that is, but right, there's a good mammalian eye. And so they'll, they'll tell that story, and it can sound so convincing because the gaps seem so small. It's just a tiny change, it's just a tiny indentation. But to me, one of the greatest holes in the Darwinian approach to evolution is that we now have cracked open the cell, we actually have access to the genetics that has to make all of that happen. For there to even be the smallest new structure, say to start bending that that skin in to be able to create an indentation. The programming has to indicate that. The DNA has to explain to all the machinery of the cell to do that. So we can actually now begin to expose these stories to calculation. We can now actually look at the mathematics behind these stories and it just simply does not up. There are no small steps yet. Even the smallest of step in the story mathematically is a vast number, it's a, it's such improv, it's like trying to explain to a group of children how toys got into the living room, and you can weave a tale of a man who comes down the chimney in a red suit and deposits all these toys and, and rides a sleigh, but when you start confronting it with reality, it just falls apart, and, and that's what these stories do.
0: If we can bring that image back up real quickly, it's a very simplistic image of the eye, but, even looking at that, you've got about a, almost a dozen different structures. It makes me wonder, if evolution happened, how would the eye know to develop all of these different structures?
2: and it is remarkable in terms of the complications because of our lack of knowledge so many things get assumed that being said that was a good model of say the human eye and you'll hear many evolutionists say that well the eye is an example of bad design i'm not sure if you've heard that because uh, the blood vessels and such it's the way our our cells are lined on the retina they seem inverted that normally if you were designing an eye, you think you would turn them this way so the light sensitive part is facing in the right direction. And certain most animals, a lot of animals do have it that way, but humans don't. Richard Dawkins has called God an idiot for, for making the eye that way. Well, as time has gone on, they've done more studies and found, and there's more than one study that says this, that an eye like ours that is so complex that does processing even before it sends it to the brain and is so, as for such a visually sensitive creature, it's actually an optimal design and the, the reversing of the cells actually gives benefit to the ability to process and the ability to feed that retina with blood But then when you present that as evidence, they just say, well, look what evolution was able to do. We thought it was a dumb design, but somehow evolution figured it out. So it really is the more we learn the gaps don't get smaller, the gaps actually get bigger. The comment you made is is interesting, how
0: evolution is smarter than we thought. Giving evolution, this process, human characteristics and intelligence, it sounds like, is, is that what evolutionary scientists do? Do they grant intelligence to evolution?
1: Well, they, they virtually have to. Uh, when, when you look at the structure of the cell, for example, it's made up of machines, uh, molecular machines. So that, that's a term that evolutionists use. Now, a machine, we know uh, uh, people make machines uh, in, in the cell. Go back to uh, the cell here a little bit. Uh, we have kinesin or kinesin. I've heard it pronounced both ways. Okay. Uh, and, and most people never even heard of a, a kinesin or a kinesin. And this is
0: actually in the nucleus of the cell, isn't it? Or is no, this would be, be in the, the regular it's part okay, of the cell yeah. We've got an image, too, um, that they can look at.
1: Yeah, uh, and it, it's not even on there. I mean, there's so much, there, there is no such thing as a simple cell. Uh, we hear about that in biology classes, but there is nothing that is simple about the cell. It is incredibly complex but a kinesin is no more than a truck. It's a little fellow that that carries a product from one part of the cell to the next part of the cell. The cell is always under construction, and so it can only go one way, but it has to find its way on microtubules, little highways within the cell, and take it from this place over to where it belongs, and it knows where to take it. Now, we don't just have one kinesin. Uh, Each cell has about 40 kinesin, because they have a different trailer hitch, to put it in, in terms we can understand. They, one doesn't carry every product in the cell. It, it only carries certain ones. And so you've got all these different ones. Now, I suppose a simple cell had just a, a, a broad hitch that could carry everything. But you have to stop and think, how did that happen? And why did it happen? And how does this machine know to take uh, this product from here and take it over here? Uh, You you start asking questions, uh, you can come up with stories, and I like that, we were talking about that earlier. Evolution is great at telling stories, but they're not really good at explaining the actual mechanism and how it actually works, how it could have happened. Mm
2: -hmm. And one thing I appreciate about what he said, it is, if you've ever seen any videos of that particular protein in action, Mm -hmm. that apparatus, it really is remarkable to just sort of see it walking along these, these microtubules inside the cell. Is that, well, how does it know? Well, if you talk to some of these scientists, physicists, and biochemists and such, they'll explain, well, here's how it happens. This, This chemical reaction causes this, and there's an attraction between these, but once this happens, that triggers this that causes this to let go, and then it binds to another. And they can map out this story, but what they've mapped out, do you remember the old cartoons in the U.S. with who's the big chicken, Uh, the big rooster? Foghorn Leghorn. And he's always abusing that poor dog. And he would create this remarkable contraption, like what they call a Rube Goldberg Mm. machine, where some water pours into a bucket that falls down and pulls a lever and does all these things. The ability to explain every step in that contraption that results in the dog getting kicked in the pants or whatever the case is, doesn't explain where it all came from. Rather, you're simply describing the components of a design your design you you can explain how it all happens but how did it all come to be that way uh, it's clearly a hallmark of design
0: well how how does that level of complexity happen in stages so that it's fulfilled what 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 could have happened if all of those stages didn't happen the way they needed to
1: well i think one of the interesting things i've i've used this before is that you could have all the components of the cell, which would be massive. I mean, it, it, that's no small task in itself. But unless you have a glad bag holding it all together, you don't have a cell. I used to use that analogy, a glad bag. But the more I've studied it into it. A Ziploc bag. A Ziploc, yeah, any, whatever it is. But it isn't just a, a membrane. They, they talk about you know a bubble, and it all ended up in a bubble. Well, this is something that's very, very complex. Uh, it, it's a double-lined wall and it allows certain things in, and other things it doesn't allow in. And and it's very complex, so it has a a gatekeeper at pores. It has pores within the the cellular structure there, the the, uh, the cellular wall, that allows certain things in that need to be inside, but keeps things out that shouldn't be there. How did that happen? Uh, Again, you go back. If you don't have something to hold it all together, you've got nothing but how do you have this cellular wall without the, the DNA and the replication of proteins to make it all up?
2: Mm. It really is remarkable if you were to think of, say, an intelligent house. Well, my phone has an app if you wanna to try to control your home with, from one source. And if we could design a house where the doors, the walls, everything new, everything you wanted, if someone brought a package from Amazon and it knew that was the package you ordered, it would bring it in for you and somehow place it on your counter. If it was a package that was mismarked because it's meant to go to the neighbor, it wouldn't bring the package in. It recognized people you want in your house, it would recognize people you you didn't want into your house. There's an intruder, it would sound the alarm on its own. Uh, it would rearrange the furniture if it needs to, to, to match the sunlight as it comes in through the window. If you had a house like that, you would think, this is remarkable. Who designed something like this? And yet everything I've described is, frankly, elementary school level stuff compared to what the cell wall is capable of doing, like Mr. Weston was describing. And yet somehow we're supposed to imagine that this came together without any active design. It just doesn't make any sense. Mm. We're supposed
0: to imagine? We're supposed to believe? That's right. That mm-hmm. it happens that way?
2: It really is. It's very it's almost the same language some would use of, of faith, right? It's someone that you just you just have to you just have to believe.
0: Mr. Weston, can you think of any other big holes in evolution? Another way I might ask the question sure. actually is is there a a problem with evolution that you personally um, find most trouble with?
1: Well, I think what I've been talking about is what I find the most trouble with. However, a a, a huge problem for Darwin, and and Darwin recognized it at the very beginning, was that uh, you would have to have all these fossils in the ground. Uh, In other words, to get from this species to another one, uh, it's all by little steps, little incremental steps. Mm -hmm. And so you would think that in the fossil record you would find these, these steps, along the way. You wouldn't find every one of them, but you certainly would find a lot of them. Uh, you know, we've been looking for the missing link uh, in the human uh, chain of things, but it isn't the missing link that we're looking for. It is the missing links by the thousands that are that are there. They're that that are not there. They can't find them. And there was a the hope during Darwin's time that with more exploration, we would find these links. But as time has gone by, uh, we don't find those links. In fact, what we find are uh, creatures that are fully formed, uh, but they're not of any, uh, you know, uh, link from, from this to that. Uh, we, we can, e- even with the human uh, links that they're finding, uh, there are huge problems with that. They, they have portrayed as though it's just a nice even step. But when you really ste- uh, step into the, the picture and you find out, they, they have all these different names, and yet there there is not the the continuity that there that is expected as uh, was brought out, and this may be may have changed in more recent times, but you take all of the the bones that they have uh, for human evolution and Supposed put them in the back it, of a yeah. pickup yeah. yeah there there just aren't that many, and so you take this and little bone and you extrapolate and you make this great picture and then they put the soft material on it. So you have a hairy person. Uh, and and much, much of the difference in species has to do with soft tissue. For example, birds uh, have a flow through lung. It's not, a, uh, it's not a diaphragm as reptiles have. It's a totally different type of a lung. And so how did it move from, from this lung to the next one?
0: You talk about the bones it reminds me of a a trip my family and i made to washington dc several years ago and we were in the museum of natural history Mm -hmm. so we're looking at skeletons of dinosaurs and all of these other types of creatures and it was amazing to me because you could you could see the skeleton you could see the the real bone Mm -hmm. and then you could see the pieces that they had filled in the gaps or filled in the blanks with And in many of these skeletons, there were more fill-ins than there were real bones. Mm -hmm. And so it just sort of makes you wonder, you know, they've constructed the rest of the puzzle, but have they constructed it based on what they think the puzzle should look like? Because there's
2: just not enough information to construct the rest of the puzzle with. Mm -hmm. Right. What Mr. Weston mentioned reminded me of a few lineages they supposedly have filled out Uh, there's the whale lineage supposedly they they've got a series of skeletons they Mm -hmm. believe represent whale evolution Uh, now from one to another there's still quite a bit of change but it looks like a plausible sort of story Uh, they've got horse uh, lineage they supposedly can create a line from that and look at here's this small dog-like animal and here's a horse and here's the potential steps in between then they have people they Mm -hmm. like to say they have Mm -hmm. people In fact, uh, one particular individual mentioned that, well, of all the lineages, it's actually the human lineage that's the most filled out, that we know the most about, which seems sort of odd, right? You have this small collection of bones, and of all the supposed animals in the world, it's somehow the human one that we know the most about. I'd say there's a bias there. But if that's all we have is a supposed whale lineage and a supposed horse lineage, a supposed people lineage, when the world is full of so much, I would say that the weight of the evidence is still so remarkably against mm-hmm. that. The fossil record still to this day does not bolster the idea of evolution in mass, unless you come to it with that line of thinking, mm-hmm. unless you come to it actually concluding, well, some will complain, well, how many gaps are you gonna have to fill in? We filled in this gap. Well, no, if, if you've got a gap the size of the Grand Canyon, And you point out to me that, well, if you're willing to hop on that rock right there, that's still not a bridge. And so much of it is hypothetical. These are arranged not because there's a label on the bone that says, by the way, I used to be this other animal and one day I'll evolve into that animal. There's a great deal of hypothesizing. There's no soft tissue Mm -hmm. to look at. There's generally no DNA in these these many examples. But if you go in on the presumption that evolution Mm -hmm. happened, well, sure, you can make a lot of things fit together, but it really is just presumption.
0: Well, is it though? I mean, I think about a whale in a whale skeleton, mm-hmm. and I think you've seen pictures of this. Where if you look at the flipper of a of a whale, and you look at in the bones in that flipper, mm-hmm. and you are in that um, what's the word I'm looking for? Fin. 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 Yes. Um, I'm thinking like a seal flipper, same thing, with a seal flipper, and you look at the bones in a human hand, they really look similar. Doesn't that indicate that you've got some
2: kind of evolution from maybe a whale or a seal to a human being? There's an interesting study that was done, I think, in 2018, and you won't see it much in the popular press because it's generally not a pro-evolution study. But those who would argue evolution argue that there's these, there should be these trees we can we can diagram such that you have humans and you have whales and there's gonna be some common ancestor, and they would cite that as evidence. I actually put a picture of those two bone sets in in, in the book for that reason. But someone suggested, based on intelligent design ideas, that if life was intelligently designed then maybe the interrelationships between their design isn't reflected by a tree so much but by what's called a dependency graph and if you talk to someone in information technology that work with computers you see that programs these days are written in a very modular fashion where this computer this program is making a call to this other sub program in another program it's a it's an example of something intelligently designed where you're reusing things that were designed for one thing but they happen to serve another purpose as well. And they actually did an experiment. I won't go into the details. It's, uh, I think I do, I don't care if I put a citation for that in the, in the book or not. We had, to, we had to trim some things. But in that, they, com- they took a look at some marine animals and they know their genetics, they know their relationships, and they tested which is a better fit. Statistically, an evolutionary tree or a dependency graph, which is clearly an evidence of of, uh, intelligent design, and the dependency graph, one hands down, Mm -hmm. that it makes far more sense to think that these similarities are the reflection of intelligent arrangement, as opposed Mm -hmm. to something that simply evolved over over time in a tree, which I thought was fascinating, because they'll often say there's no positive research indicating intelligence, and that study is one. Mm To make it uh,
1: real simple, uh, there's a place, I, I believe it's Charlevoix up in um, in Michigan, and off the main road, if you, you drive off into the, the subdivisions there, a subdivision where the houses are, there there's some very interesting houses. The roofs are not square uh, as we would have. They don't have sharp edges. It's, it's more like a, a rolling hillside. And uh, the reason is because there was a particular builder who built houses that way. And they're quite remarkable. And so uh, what it shows is a common designer. Uh, God certainly could, if, if he is like, well, I don't want to liken him to us, but uh, he, he, we're made in his image. And, and we follow certain patterns. So it's how you tell the story. Evolutionists want to tell it one way. But there's another explanation for it, and we believe there's a better explanation for these things, and that is that God created them. Of course, evolutionists say, well, we can't fill in this gap, we can't do this or that, and that's the God of, of gaps. But in reality, we have the God of materialism with evolutionists. They, they think that there's a, an evolutionary explanation for everything, and they'll throw out questions such as, well, where did God come from? Well, that, that's the god of materialism in, in reality. In other words, their argument against us can be turned right around.
2: Right. There really are so many gaps that are just filled in with evolution. It's, you asked what really irks us a while ago, and Mr. Weston gave his answer. For me, I wish I could say it was the science, but it really is more the presumption involved in so much. When you really do get into the literature, and you have to dive pretty deeply before you start seeing some honest admissions of how much... They don't know. And when you do, you start to realize that these gaps Mr. Weston is talking about are filled in by the assumption that evolution can do this, that somehow evolution can. And that's part of why Darwin was so popular is he actually provided some kind of mechanism that seemed like maybe it could do the trick. But in the around 160 years since then, we've discovered it's not doing the trick. The Royal Society just recently had uh, in the last year or so, a meeting talking about the problems with Darwinism because Darwin just isn't able to cut the muster when it comes to explaining that. But yet yeah, we still hear it like it's a given fact. We shouldn't question it. We can't explain the mechanism. We can't explain how it happened. We can't explain how it defeats all improbabilities, but please mm-hmm. just assume it actually happened and take our word for it. That's worse than what the religious guy on television is asking me to do mm-hmm. for his beliefs. Well, you know, your, your booklet on evolution
1: and creation, what both sides miss, uh, the challenge on that was really to boil it down to a certain size that, that made sense, but also the challenge that you had of trying to give enough technical information to satisfy those who are going to university, as an example, and, and not being so technical that you lose the, the common reader. So it, it was very difficult for you to be able to... Uh, to have that kind of balance in there.
2: Thank you. I probably cried on your shoulder a good bit. Well, you had some some great
1: quotes. (laughs) I mean, there are some great quotes in there from evolutionists of what they don't know. And uh, I I would challenge our readers to, our viewers, to, to get that booklet. And, you know, even if it's a little bit technical at certain times, there's so much that you can gain from it. And I like to challenge myself a little bit, read things that are a little bit over my head, because you, you learn over a period of time. And so
0: that's, that's an outstanding resource that you've put together there. Thank you. Let me ask you, we've sort of been going in this direction. There are, there are gaps. The uh, scientists today are, a term I would use when I worked with my graduate students years ago, was they're extrapolating beyond the data. You know, it looks like there's a little bit of a trend but they're leaping out here way down the line and thinking oh it, it, if we take the line out far enough it's going to take us there you know with with graduate students one of the biggest things we have to work with them on when they're writing a thesis or a dissertation in their conclusion section is making sure they are not drawing conclusions based on what they want to see mm-hmm. but they're drawing conclusions based on what they have seen mm-hmm. and it's it's always been uh, it, it's irked me as a university faculty member, former university faculty member, that scientists allow themselves to get away with things they would never allow their graduate students to get away with. Mm-hmm. But my I guess my question to you is, why does science do this? Why do some of these, why do evolutionary scientists lean toward or, or go toward or run toward or support macroevolution when there's really not the scientific undergirding Mr. Weston?
1: Well, I I think that uh, there's one scripture in the Bible that really explains it, uh, Romans 8-7, because the carnal mind, the physical fleshly mind, apart from from God working with it, is enmity against God. It's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. There's a hostility toward God. Mm. And and I think that when you take a, a book like Richard Dawkins' book, Uh, the God delusion, and various other ones. These men are hostile to God. Now, why are they hostile to God? There are even quotes on that. Uh, I forget the the fellow's name, a very famous uh, evolutionist um, who, who basically said, we want freedom to do whatever we want to do. And when you read Romans, the first chapter, uh it says that they they have suppressed the truth and then why do they or what happens as a result of that they go into all kinds of sexual perversions and other things like that and when we look at our world today we see a world that is rejecting god at least our western world and what do we see we see more and more uh deviation from anything that uh is a standard that god would give us
2: i think romans 1 says a lot in the passage he just referred to where Paul talks about those who think they're wise, but he says, actually, what there is to be known about God in terms of general revelation is there for them, and they see this, but they did not like to retain God in their minds. They didn't want to think about that. Uh, It really does inhibit your freedom when you feel accountable to someone. And so it says, professing to be wise, they became fools. Now, I would say there are those who consider themselves Christians today who embrace evolution, and they would say, I'm not trying to live a life of, of perversion or anything mm-hmm. like that it just seems to be scientifically sound but part of that is the power of orthodoxy mm-hmm. when people disagree with evolution at certain levels of academia they are pushed out mm-hmm. uh, their their research suddenly doesn't appear as frequently uh, one fellow was erased from Wikipedia because all of a sudden he wasn't considered a significant scientist when he was a leader in his field he was highly <laughs> published but there is a sense of persecution and there is there's a power of orthodoxy. When it is the reigning idea in a field to enter that field, it's just part of, the, mm-hmm. it's part of the assumption. If we don't think peer pressure works on scientists just because they're older or have degrees, we just don't understand human nature. Mm-hmm. I think
1: that we, we're seeing more scientists who are coming out and saying that, no, there's got to be intelligence behind life. Now, he was a philosopher, not a, a scientist, but An- Anthony Flew, uh, for 50 years, professed, uh, atheism, and he changed his mind when he looked at DNA. And, and he, he realized that here is a code, you know, six feet, six feet of this is wrapped up into the center of the cell, and it's nothing other than code. And it explains, or it tells the cell how to produce this protein and that protein and everything. But the problem is that uh, you need DNA to produce proteins, But you need proteins to actually make them so you've got the instructions but unless you have the machines to make them you've got nothing and so we come up with the which came first the chicken or egg all the time through through looking at the cells through looking at everything that that we have around us which came first it's been trivialized you know which came first the chicken or the egg but that is a huge Huge problem that comes up time and time and time and time again. And people like Richard Dawkins have a, a hostility to God.
2: And one of these days, he's going to have to face the music. And that's why time is on our side. Right, that's part of the appeal. Richard Dawkins is a good example. I think he's the one that said it was Charles Darwin who made it possible to, possible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. If you really parse that and parse a lot of his work, there's already a prior commitment to atheism. Mm -hmm. It's just, am I gonna be one who's intellectually fulfilled or am I going to admit that I don't have an intellectual basis for my stance? And so if that is what helps you feel better about yourself, that I I do have solid ground for, for, for my atheism, my denial of God's existence, then you're going to be a bit biased. You're really going to tap into that and mm. present with all the evidence in the world. It's not going to be enough to mount that challenge necessarily.
0: Mm-hmm. Are there any other scriptures that stand out to you that uh, sort of refute or call into question evolution or really support the, the flip side of that?
1: Well, Psalm 1, 139, I think it's about verse 13. I'm not sure the exact verse uh david said i am fearfully and wonderfully made Mm. and when we look at you don't have to know about cellular biology if you just look at the creation around us the marvels of creation my wife put out a little hummingbird feeder and you look at that bird it's so different from every other bird it's not like any of the others in terms of its abilities and and how did it how did it get that way David could look at the human body and look at a newborn baby and, and say that this is this is marvelous. So I, I think that uh, when you just open your eyes without the prejudice, and, and you know, the, the fact is that a lot of these young people coming out of the schools, they have this pumped into their minds constantly, and it, it looks on the surface logical. And unless they really question and look into the evidence, Uh, it's easy to be persuaded by this. And I think that a lot of people out there uh, are persuaded. And one of the things that the booklet brings out that Mr. Uh, uh, Smith wrote there is that not only are evolutionists wrong, but a lot of creationists, the young earth creationists are wrong. And that's a whole other story. Mm -hmm. But that's part of the problem as well. A lot of things that religious people say are not all that logical and sensible and scientific. And there is a lot of uh, proper
0: science that we need to understand. Mm -hmm. Gentlemen, this has been an interesting discussion. It's been fun. I think the three of us appreciate it so much that we could probably stay here all evening (laughs) and and talk about it and uh, sort of egg each other on we do need to wind down, but I would like you to leave our audience with something meaningful. What is a takeaway? Mr. Smith, we'll start with you in a second. What is a takeaway that you would like the audience to keep in mind as they view this topic? Because this is not going away. It's going to stay in the press, it's going to become more antagonistic as both sides sort of argue about it, but what should should they keep in mind as they think about evolution, Darwinian
2: evolution, and the like? I would encourage anyone watching our program right now, if you're not going to be able to get away from this mindset, if all you take in is the constant feed that's coming to you from popular media, the Discovery Channel, all of that takes evolution for a given. Step aside, get away from it just a little bit, dive into some of the sorts of materials that actually evolution is encouraging you not to read try to read some of Michael Behe's work. He's an intelligent design theorist and his work, Darwin's Black Box and others. I like Behe's work because his very first book, Darwin's Black Box, was really a sort of pillar. And he, he breaks up his work. If you don't want the technical details, he highlights that. You can read this if you want to, but read this. But if you have children or if you yourself are sort of caught up in the idea that it has to be this way, there is a whole world of people out there that are starting to learn it simply isn't. And consider tapping into some of that and educating yourself, not less, but actually educating yourself more. Thank
0: you for that. It, it just reminds me, there, there are evolutionary scientists themselves who believe in evolution and don't believe in creation who are still pointing out the fallacies with macroevolution. Mm-hmm. Mr. Weston, what are your thoughts? Well, I think
1: if people are discerning viewers, readers. Uh, for example, you hear all the time, designed, engineered, uh, machines. You, you hear all these terms, code. And if people stop to think, okay, how did machines get there? How, how does code, who wrote the code? Uh, who engineered this? They talk about the marvels of all these things. I, I agree with Mr. Smith that Education is so important, and there's so much out there. If you just go on uh, YouTube, uh, DNA Replication uh, by Drew Berry, that's a tremendous resource. They have shown by computers what's taking place in the cell. And anybody that watches that and sees how, in fact, he says it's just that mechanical. When you see how it is done, you have to stop and say, What kind of faith does it take to believe that this just happened by itself? So I think that people need to study the subject. Uh, I think that there's so much fun stuff out there. Um, one of my wife's favorite ones is uh, A Day in the Life of a Motor Protein, about a kinesin. And it's just that, an animation, but it shows uh, how, what, what goes on in the cell. And it's so much more than people realize.
0: Okay. Thank you, thank you both very much for being on the program again today. Thank you for talking about this exciting topic. To me, when I think about science and I think about what we're talking about, it really validates the scriptures and it actually works with the scriptures when we get into it. And the Bible has, to me, better explanations for why these things happen than science ever has come up with on their own. Time is on our side. Yes, very much so. Changes or adaptations within species do occur over time, as we've talked about, microevolution. For example, crossbreeding different types of dogs—Mr. Weston talked about this—brings out different traits—longer tails, shorter noses, etc. But macroevolution, evolution evolution above the species levels—monkeys, for example, evolving into human beings—is a far-fetched and truly impossible idea if we take a fair and a measured look at the quantum amount of new development that has to occur to support such changes. For macroevolution to truly work, as Darwin and others have professed, these micro changes, tiny little changes, would need to happen extremely quickly and also at the same time, or the organism would die and the process would end. Macroevolution, this big change, is nothing more than an intellectual wishful thinking. It is the hope of individuals who do not want to be beholden to an all-powerful, all-knowing God and his life-giving laws. Today we've just touched on this topic. If you'd like to learn more about the holes in Darwin's theory and further in-depth explanations, be sure to read our new booklet, Mr. Uh, Smith has written. We've got a copy of it here for you to see as well. It's called Evolution and Creation What Both Sides Miss. And you can find this at tomorrowsworld.org. It's free for the download or it's free for ordering. In this booklet, Mr. Smith takes a very fair look at both arguments from macroevolution and also what is called creation science, both of which do have flaws. To view more of today's news in light of the Bible, be sure to join us each week here on TW Now. Next week, we plan to examine the question where is the kingdom of God? We invite you to subscribe, like, or share today's program, and again, we look forward to seeing you next week.